Well, hi, everybody. It's Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And, um, well, I'll have to admit it. I am a junkie for holidays and celebrations and seasonal occurrences. So I do have a focus on today's show on these two celebrations that happened this week that, for people who observe Lent, are a break from Lent. That's something I learned today as I did a little bit of research to make sure I knew what I was talking about on St. Patrick's Day and St. Joseph's Day, and particularly the very intriguing and mysterious connection between the marching of Mardi Gras Indian tribes in the city and St. Joseph's Day. Um, I, I've been doing my research on this and can't come up with an answer. And um, I have folks from the House of Dance and Feathers on the line. Um, hello. Hello. Hi, who's this? This is Ronald W. Lewis, the director of the House of Dance and Feathers. Oh, great, Ronald. Okay. Um, so um, I'm fascinated. I, I did. I went in and, and kind of Googled away trying to see more about this, and it seems like every single listing was saying it's a big mystery why the Mardi Gras Indian tribes uh, con- convene and march and uh, on, on St. Joseph's Day. Now, I did my research. Let me just put this out there. I understand that St. Joseph um, uh, was, of course, it's, it's celebrating the, the father of Jesus. And um, apparently there was a big famine in Sicily way back. And um, the uh, citizens there prayed to St. Joseph to relieve them of the famine. And when it was relieved, they celebrated and, and had offerings of all kinds of the sweet delicacies that we know today are put out on the St. Joseph's um, altar. And, of course, in New Orleans, we don't do anything without a parade. So there's St. Joseph's Day parades and, and, and so forth. So it isn't just the altars. It's the parades. But, Ronald, do you have any clue? And I have one very interesting little fact that I turned up, and I'm going to be curious to see if you – uh, put this out there, but what's your understanding as to the link? Uh, well, my my understanding from our part of the culture is that the Black Mardi Gras Indian actually use uh, St. Joseph Day at at the closing of our season back then, and and it's thirty days after Mardi Gras, and that's when the Mardi Gras Indian would come out at dusk off and parade through the community before they start the preparation for the next Mardi Gras season. I see, but but why specifically on St. Joseph's Day? Well, that is that the, an accident? The only answer I can give you that that it it was used as a closure of the season. I see, the, but I can't tell you specifically any other connection. Okay, well, here's here's uh, one thing. Here's one thing I picked up uh, in my research, and uh, I don't know. I never heard this before, and I don't know whether you did. And I was looking to try to see if I could track somebody down connected to the church, but I didn't have time. But um, apparently, there was a time in New Orleans when Italian immigrants first came to the city, uh, especially the Sicilians. And they were not welcome. So they were treated as minorities are often treated by others, not very respectfully. And they were not even allowed in Catholic churches around the city, except for one. Now, 
take a guess as to which church welcomed them. Well, St. Augustine Church? Exactly right. And and it was, at, of course, a black church at the yeah. time. It didn't start originally as a black church, but it welcomed blacks. And so it was viewed by some as a black church. But apparently uh, the people of the St. Aug Church did respect and welcome the Sicilians into their church. And it, it, it was the suggestion of the, of the reading that I saw that perhaps that had something to do with the origins of the connection. There's also the connection that the Sicilians, again, when they first came here, of course, they were very poor, and they lived in poor neighborhoods, including the French Quarter, which at the time when they came here had declined, and it was a poor neighborhood, as was Treme, and they were in Treme as well. So um, isn't that interesting? It, it's quite it's quite interesting, but see that is what that's the uniqueness of New Orleans, where somewhere along the line all of that will be connected. Exactly, exactly. We do we do that, don't we? We and and the same thing even with St. Patrick's Day. So I was looking into St. Patrick's Day, and I'm going to talk with somebody a little later in the show about St. Patrick's Day. But you know that that started out as a day also that had to do with the way the Protestants and the British disrespected the Irish Catholics. And so it was an Irish pride thing that um, people in Ireland declared that they would, on St. Patrick's Day, who was always the patron saint of Ireland, um, that they would celebrate the heritage and the traditions and and the pride of, of being Irish. So it seems like one of the things that we do to, to, to get the respect that maybe I guess we have to kind of earn or declare is to celebrate. So going back to the whole tradition of Mardi Gras marching in general, not just on St. Joseph's Day, but take take me back and tell me about your understanding and what the legends are about the marching of, of the Indian tribes and, and how that came to be in general. Well, uh, uh. Like like I say, like for Saint Joseph Day, we use that as the uh, closure of the season. But then after that, back in the early seventies, uh, the tribes then came together to decide to give people more of an opportunity to see the Mardi Gras Indians. So they created this parade called a Super Sunday, and and once this uh, took root. It became a very big event within uh, the community of New Orleans. So that's always been a kind of question in my mind, too, about how the tribes, which originally, again, marched for themselves and not for anybody else, feel about the people who watched them. See, that's before the 70s. So, so now we, you know, they uh, give more exposure to our great culture to the world, and and really the world has responded because on Super Sunday, uh, thousands of people come to watch the Mardi Gras Indians and all that beautiful regalia and hard work that they put in to the sea, so people can see uh, what we have accomplished. Now, here's another question I have always had. So uh, one of the legends I've always heard is that 
one of the origins of the Mardi Gras Indian costuming goes back to a connection with Native Americans, that there was a time when um, two things happened, when uh, slaves that were escaping might be um, harbored and protected by Native Americans, and, and secondly, that um, by dressing as Native Americans, um, black New Orleanians were able to evade the white laws that said they could not costume. So those are two legends I've heard. Tell, tell me your view uh, on those. It's all of a blend. And as, as the history goes, well, on the first part, that uh, the, the French had a law in the bush called Code Noir. And under, under that law, slaves didn't work on Sundays, but it was slaves and three people of color. And at Congo Square is where the Native Americans and the blacks would in a hat on Sunday. They would chant, dance, trade, and barter. And and by us not being included in mainstream Mardi Gras, we created the neighborhood Mardi Gras. We were the black Mardi Gras Indian baby doll skeletons and, and parade maskers. And from from that's where the image comes in. We adopted the Native American imagery. So now here's, I'm going to add another little uh, ingredient to this gumbo legends that we're talking about. And, and y'all out there, you know, chime in if anybody's got some uh, views on this, 260-9265, um, 260-9265. But all right, now, have you ever seen the costumes that the Haitians where in Haiti on Mardi Gras? Yeah, well, you know, you you can follow that that passageway through the Caribbean and Latin America to the poor city of New Orleans, and when, that's where you start seeing the similarities in Barbados, in in Haiti, and and the various islands that the, the tradition carries on. But it, it came to the islands before it came to the port city of New Orleans. Now, listen to this. Um, so uh, are you familiar with, and I don't know how to pronounce it. I never know whether it's Yoruba or Yoruba, but there were tribes in Africa, in Western Africa, that um, had a tradition of um, sewing beads onto um, skin, usually animal skin, and um, making these really beautiful um, both costumes as well as objects of various sorts with beads. And the patterns of those beads are very much related, again, to the beading that you see in the Caribbean islands and in New Orleans. So it seems like, just like gumbo itself, the origin may trace right back to that West African tradition. What do you think about that? Well, well yeah, understand this. Okay, you got to understand where our people came from, Africa. In Africa, right, the various uh, African tribes uh, uh, use these. So, but the Native American used these too. So when you talk about a cross-culture and that passageway from Africa 
to America, all of this was, was brought there. And, and, and now, you know, it's more significant than ever because if you look at the Maasai, they, they use bees and make them beautiful necklaces and earrings and everything. So there is that direct connection from Africa to America and, and the Pussy and Hollis. It's fascinating. And, and the, what fascinates me also is how strong these traditions st- still are. And they just keep, they just keep going. I mean, well, it, it may change and morph and, and become something different, but it continues. And, and now you have a museum, um, yeah. of the, the House of, of Dance and Feathers. Tell me about how you work in your museum to, again, reflect these traditions. Well, look, that's, that's the reason why I started the House of Dance and Feathers, and I really got accredited to my friend Sylvester Francis at the Backstreet Museum, who actually put it on the forefront before me. But with the House of Dance and Feathers, I'm just another one of those that try to connect the dots from, from the black Mardi Gras Indians to black Indians as per se. To, to the written history and everything, and and to have people have a better understanding about our great culture. And like I tell people, culture in New Orleans is either at your door or in your house. And what that means, as the culture continues to live from the 1800s up till now, that we continue to indoctrinate our young into this great culture, because the culture is alive and well to everything that ever went on. Now, Ronald, let me ask you two questions. Yes. You saw talking about the young. The young are now so influenced by by games, by television, by the celebrities. The celebrities have become more important than ever, the national and international celebrities. That's one counter tradition, counter force that I worry about whether our our, our kids will keep up the um, the old traditions of New Orleans, and then the well, second fact. Well, go ahead. Well, you think about this: ten years after Hurricane Katrina, and here, like I see, the culture is alive and well, is very strong, because this is New Orleans. This is not Chicago, New York, or Detroit, or the places where culture don't lie the same way. So. Uh, being a Mardi Gras Indian or a Parisian Associated Pleasure Club is, is something special to do, you know. And so uh, our young still embrace this great culture because as you would come out on, on Super Sunday and see all these kids dressed in beautiful costumes and everything, still carrying on the culture. And, you know, I, I understand that you were crowned a king of the Cru de Vue in yeah. 2008, so uh, that must have been a kind of interesting twist on your Mardi Gras traditions. No, it, it wasn't a twist on my tradition. It's just that uh, by being deeply involved in my community at, in the recovery of Katrina, that I was recognized for that. And being king of Kudavu was something else special in my life. And and I cherish it, even though, uh, truly, uh, you, have you heard of the marching group Crew to Chew? Yes. 
Well, I'm the big mock of crew that you. I've, I've been with you since 2000. I love yeah. it. That's great. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, I didn't uh, I wonder how many people in New Orleans know what a maca is. <laughs> and, and by believing in the diversity of this city, um, the House of Dancers tells us it's welcome to everyone. But the foundation is the culture that I love, the Mardi Gras Indian. So you're at 1317 Tupelo Street in the Lower Ninth Ward. And you stayed open all the time, even through all the mess when there was nobody back, right? That, that's right. I remember you know, coming I, to your place. I use, I use that as a beacon light in the recovery in my community. Say, come on to the Lower Ninth Ward. Come on, show your love and support for people who are still struggling 10 years after Hurricane Katrina, but it's still all right. You know, speaking of which, um, how do you feel, Ronald, about how things are coming along uh, around you in the Lower Ninth Ward? Well, you know, uh, finally, it's it's showing uh, hope for the future. Because we finally got our fire station, our beautiful community center, and they're getting ready to open our high school down here again. So, you know, like I used to I'll tell people, we were on the respirator, we off the respirator, now we're up and walking. Well, I think, I, think, yeah. I think you were, uh, in fact, the respirator for so long because I remember those that days, um, you know, when we did that uh, Waiting for Godot performance down there and the only yeah. other thing going on in the whole area was the House of Dance and Feathers and everybody wanted to come through and see it and learn about the uh, Mardi Gras Indian traditions. And, and Ronald Lewis, thank you so much for what you do and have done. And um, we all um, need to tip our hat to you for, for what's going on there. Now, you're open. It's free. Um, what are your hours like? My, my house is on Kidnapoo, Monday, Tuesday. Okay. And if people want to donate, can they go to your website? Uh I have my website, but I don't take donations off a website. Okay, so people have to come in and see what's yeah. there and donate while they're there, right? And, and be able to ask me a hard question. Okay. Listen, keep, keep, keep it going and um, enjoy Super Sunday. And yep, um, yep. Uh, yeah, I see, you know, you're also a Big Nine Social Aid and Pleasure Club and Chief of the Choctaw yeah. Hunters and – You're just deep in it, so everybody think about coming to visit Ronald at the House of Dance and Feathers. And I'd like to tell you this before I close. Tomorrow, I'm getting a Lifetime Achievement Award from an organization called Better Men. And, you know, it's it's such a great book to be thought of like that. But I thank you for allowing me to speak. Ronald, thank you so much for oh. what you do. House of Dance and Feathers, Ronald Lewis. And okay. um, you keep on uh, in your royal self. All right. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you okay. very much, Ronald. All right. Now, that's okay. that's a little bit about the Mardi Gras Indian uh, tradition on St. Joseph's Day. And by the way, uh, I just want to call out on St. Joseph's Day. I'm going to come take some pictures because I'm going to go to a – um, a little function that um, uh, uh, Lena Torres puts on in St. Bernard Parish with all the little uh, treats 
and cakes, just things I don't need at all, but I can't resist, and um, take some pictures of that included in our newsletter next week. And, um, y'all, if you have some photographs that you take of the Mardi Gras Indians uh, this weekend, please send them in to us at um, – send them to uh, uh, ci at gmail.com, and we'll post them in the newsletter. That's jnathan for Nathan dot C-I at gmail.com. All right, now we have um, Joni Mugavan. So if I press three, I'm going to make it okay. Uh, Joni? Yes, hi. Hi, how are you doing? Good, very good. Okay, now Joni Mugavan, is that how you pronounce your name? Yes, that's correct. Is the founder and director of the Mugavan School of Irish Dance. So, you know, um, Joni, I grew up, in the Bronx in New York, and I worked in a big um, restaurant chain called Schraff's that was owned by the Frank Shattuck family, which was an Irish family. So most of the people, a lot of the people who worked there were Irish. So I learned all kinds of things while I worked there over the years. Throughout all my high school years, I was either working in a little bake shop in Grand Central Station um, or I worked in the, in the uh, restaurants. And um, guess what? I learned how to do the Irish jig. Oh, wow. That's so great. <laughs> kind of, sort of. I mean, I probably uh, <laughs> would, would, you know, put it to shame at this point. Well, it'll but... come in handy today. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I'm, I'm fascinated to know, you know, the Irish music, a lot of people don't realize this, but the Irish were such a predominant part of the, the demographics of the South, not mm-hmm. just after – when the Irish came here in the latter part of the um, uh, 19th century after mm-hmm. the potato famine, but way back in the very beginning of the settling of the area, um, it was settled by a lot of Irish people. And I believe that there's a big connection between Irish music, the songs, not just the jigs mm-hmm. and the dances, mm-hmm. but the songs and the blues. And mm-hmm. I, I haven't really pursued um, you know, musicologists to tell me about that connection, but a lot of the folk music of of the English, of the British Isles in general, Scottish and Irish and British, um, mm-hmm. they're they they are um, as mournful and and caring about the tragedies and the love of life that mm-hmm. the blues are. And so I've al- often wondered, you know, how did that all connect? Uh, way back there, and 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 in your dance training and in your exploration of Irish dance, tell mm-hmm. me about the origins of it, and tell me about whether you view this connection that I that I've mentioned. Uh, well, America definitely had a lot of different cultures um, that met here and influenced each other, and one of the big ones is American tap. Um, predominantly, is the Irish that came over. And um, Africans that were here, they were doing African tribal dancing, and Irish dancers were doing Irish dancing, and that actually influenced American tap. So as far as music is concerned, I'm sure everyone had a relatively sad story leaving home, um, whether, you know, um, voluntarily or involuntarily. Um, There is a lot of cross-cultural connections, people may be hanging out, singing sad songs, or like for St. Patrick's Day, that's a celebration here, more so than in Ireland, it's actually more of a religious 
day, but for Americans, it was actually a day where they could do the things that to remember home. So it's not as much of a celebrated holiday in Ireland as it is here because of the fact that um, people were remembering their home when they were here. So it's kind of interesting what America with multiple cultures, how it kind of, in a sense, changed the different cultures it was around and kind of formed its own. Um, like Ronald was talking about, like Mardi Gras Indians um, is typically a New Orleans cultural thing that had influences from Native Americans and the French. And so it's pretty amazing what multicultural um, connections and influences can create. And I, think like particularly, and I think particularly in New Orleans, again, because traditions and the historic forms of culture um, really were more powerful in a way than the more um, contemporary forms, although out of the traditions came contemporary forms that influenced the mm -hmm. whole world. I mean, jazz right. comes out of New Orleans. Blues comes out of, of course, the Delta and New Orleans and, and mm -hmm. the whole South. But um, it's so much of, of what came from here influenced the entire global culture mm -hmm. in the 20th mm -hmm. century. But um, it, it came from a combination of a respect and a, and a mm -hmm. um, continuance of the traditions mm -hmm, along mm -hmm. with, as you say, this melding of the cultures. Mm -hmm. I mean, we mm -hmm. definitely care a lot more about this stuff than they do in some places. Right, And I, right. I think out of that has gone. Now, so you teach Irish dance. Yes. Now, I tell do. me, so who, who studies Irish dance and, and, and where do you perform? And, and tell me a little bit about the dance. And, and I have this... You know, I'm such a curious person. So one of the things I've always wondered about is that that real pure Irish dance performance that you see sometimes um, uh, where the dancers all kind of line up next to each other and they keep their arms at their sides and mm -hmm, only their mm -hmm. feet move. Right, and I've always right. wondered about what that's all about. Uh, well, basically I teach Irish dancing um, all ages, levels, performance, competition, um, I'm a certified Irish dance teacher, which is like this rigorous test you take in order to kind of be labeled that you're doing the real thing, basically. Um, but what Irish dancing is, is it kind of evolved over time. I think what attracts me to Irish dancing is the fact that it has very traditional roots, um, but it's got an open um, evolution that has allowed it to grow into its modern type. So. Traditionally, Irish dancing has always had the arms by your side, um, and there's so many different stories of why that is. Some say it's because when Britain occupied Ireland that the Irish were not allowed to do their dance form, so when the British soldiers walked past, they wouldn't notice they were dancing. Um, some say it's because the Irish like a challenge, and it's much more challenging to keep your arms in by your side. So there's a few different, you know, Theories. stories on yeah. why that is. Mm -hmm. But it is actually what is most recognizable. Most people know it's Irish dancing by the arms in, um, by the side. But in 1993, there was a, um, actually a Chicago man named Michael Flatley who brought his arms out and started flying all over the place. And he's actually what made Irish dancing popular amongst a lot of people. What did you say his last name was? Flatley. How do you spell that? F-L-A-T-L-E-Y. I just want to look uh, that up and see about him. Well, you know what's yeah. so interesting? And most most cultures have some kind of fancy 
footwork in their tradition. So I think about the Spanish and, and, and the Spanish dance tradition, which is, by the way, the opposite with the arms. It's very much about the arms and the castanets. Um, and, and, but also that same kind of, uh, it's, it's almost, again, like a tap dancing tradition. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that's one. I think about the Greek dancers and the Mediterranean mm-hmm. dancers, which usually are men for some mm-hmm, reason. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why. And, and, and they have uh, traditions of, of, of a movement of the feet that is not unrelated to the kind of foot movement that you see in, in the Irish and in the Spanish. And, mm-hmm, um, and mm-hmm. so it's, it's fascinating that it, it is something that humans of all kinds seem to want to do even though mm-hmm. it takes different forms. Not to mention mm-hmm. the incredible footwork of, of the New Orleans dance traditions. Again, mm-hmm. back to the uh, social aid and pleasure clubs and the, and the Mardi Gras Indians. There mm-hmm. is nobody who comes from anywhere else who can truly uh, imitate or, or copy or, or achieve that, da- that foot movement. You can't, you can't do it if you're not from New Orleans. That's all there is to it. You can pretend, and I try, yeah. but it, you can't do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It always comes down to the soul of the music. You understand the music and how you express it, and I feel like that's how different cultures have come up with their dance forms. Um, Irish dancing typically is very rhythmic, so it, it appreciates the special tunes, and we're just complementing the music. Um, it's just an expression of the music. So, so where are you going to be dancing today? Today we're actually we're just on the news just a little while ago, um, and we're also going to be at the Hilton Riverside for um, Ancient Order of Hibernians events, and we'll also be at Finn McCool's. They're having, I think, a block party of all kind of Irish events. So Where is that? Where is well that going to be? Dancers. Where is that at block Finn party going to be? Where? Finn McCool's. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Irish House will have some things. Cherry Irish Pub in the Quarter will have some things. So. All the Irish pubs are, are doing things, and we'll be around just jumping up, doing some steps at different places. Well, I'm going to be talking in just a moment with uh, Chef Murphy from the uh, Irish House, so we'll hear mm-hmm. more about that. But um, I, I'm, I'm just so impressed that you have kept this tradition going, that you're teaching it. And um, so let's see, the name of your school is the Mugavan School of Irish Dance. Yes. And you're located it. on um, 901 Veterans Boulevard. Yes. Sweet 205 <laughs> in Metairie. And I guess people can call mm-hmm. 416-0091. Um, no, it's actually, um, oh, yes, yes, that's correct. Okay. So if they would like, if they're interested in, in actually learning how to do Irish dance, that's where they might uh, learn how mm-hmm. to do it. And, and, and Joni, thank you for keeping the tradition going. Oh, thanks for having me. And My en- pleasure. En- enjoy yourself today. I know you will. Thank you. Yeah. All right. You take okay. care. All Thank right. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Now we turn to the food side of the story, of course, and we're going to talk with um, Chef Matt Murphy on three. Okay. How are you? Hi. I'm, Can you hear me? I'm great, and I am just amazed to read um, your credits that uh, my friend Christoph Mergeson, who, who put all my information together for me today, um, has yeah. here about you that you've had your pub now since 2011, but you were born in Dublin. So I'm waiting to hear your Irish accent. You've had multiple... Uh, no problem. Yeah, no, I was born in Dublin, and yeah, it's all true. Lucky, lucky an Irishman, get out there and cook some good food and, and stuff. 
people always have a, have a funny um, idea about um, Irish food, but it's, it's to match anything in the world nowadays, you know? Well, yeah, I'm, 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 I am curious about this because um, I, I don't know if you were listening to my interview um, earlier um, with, with Joni. Joni. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, as I said, I worked in this a big restaurant chain in New York. It was one of those really big restaurant chains, the, the Schraff's restaurants. I grew up in them, really. I was in there in all my teen years and in college. They, they even sent me off to college with a scholarship. Um, and uh, that's where I learned uh, some of the Irish traditions. Now, the food that they served, I wouldn't typify as Irish, but I have to admit that I don't really know what that means, what Irish food means. So I'm real curious to hear, and I know you cook all kinds of food yeah. and not just Irish, but I, I, I well, do want you to explain to me what Irish food is. Is Well, you know, if you go back, if you, you know, some people get lost, they don't study their history and they don't really know what's happening on, but if you look at them, I was just looking into it, and most of you think about the moonshine and all that stuff from the from the food. I always look at the food and beverage, from the drinks, on the food, from the moonshine that was developed over here in the, in the U.S. That was a lot of you know immigrants from Ireland and Scotland that were, became farmers, and then they ended up um, they ended up like starting to uh, brew their own kind of whiskey, which turned into moonshine, and they brought those techniques over to the U.S. And now you have bourbon, and basically changed into bourbon. Yeah, the dishes like you know you have bread pudding. It's, it's kind of a, a dish over there that's that between Ireland. It has different origins. It's, it's spread over. I'm, I'm thinking like we live in New Orleans, and what would New Orleans be without without a um without what would New Orleans be without um without a uh, bread pudding? You know what I mean? You can't think of New Orleans without bread pudding. Right. So uh, dishes like that, along with some of the stews, the lamb stews, and 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 and, and items like that. Uh, they make a transition and they change a little bit in these different different places within the states. Now but you know are, uh, original dishes that you know whether you, you come from Ireland and it's, it's, it's uh, they have the lamb stew, the fish and chips, which is kind of all over between England and Ireland. It's, it's a thing that everybody has at the end of the night. You know uh, when they go to a pub or they go out to have a drink, they always end with a fish and chips or or a bag of chips and vinegar on it, malt vinegar and things like that. You know. Okay, now hold on. Let's slow slow down because we've we've passed through a couple of my favorite things. But uh-huh. my mother, who was Czech, Czechoslovakian, but her mother died when she was twelve, and the the family broke up, and she yeah. became an au pair, what's called an au pair, working for an English family. So her cooking style was basically yeah. what I would typify as English, and one of the things that she cooked on a regular basis was lamb stew and beef stew and my husband is is a vegetarian so we don't prepare that much in my house but I have a very clear taste memory of lamb stew and she made it with um to, she made it she didn't make it it was not a very tomatoey base it was more of a um onion carrot potatoes lamb she would braise the lamb, of course, at first, um, you know, uh, saute it, I guess you would say, and then add all these other ingredients. And I, I don't really know what made up so much of the juice. Maybe there was some tomato soup in there or something. I'm not sure. But tell me, yeah. tell me, I, tell me your recipe for lamb stew. Let's just get down to the well, basics you know, here. Here's a good one. I'm glad you said, you know, you were talking about lamb stew and beef stew. And in, and this is the funny thing. When I go out and I do, I go to make Irish stew. I make it with beef because I came from I came from the East Coast in Ireland, and a lot of the Midlands there's a lot of cows. Lamb stew got famous all over the world because you know a lot of the immigrants came from the the, the West Coast where there was sheep and it's very mountainous. 
foot in. Ah. I, I, and, you know, it, they're both made very similar. It's, you're, you're taking this, the, the, the tough meat from the, from the lamb or the beef and you're, you're stewing it down. Um, some people put in some, they put in some beer or like Guinness. They call it a Guinness, a Guinness in with this too. Some people just braise it with the, with, with the stock that comes from the bone. And it just gets all, it cooks so long, it's like caramelized flavor. And I, I prefer to cook my meat. And I know that whenever I, I want to put my, uh, my vegetables in, I, I kind of hold them back. And I, I know they're going to take about 40 minutes to cook. And I, I like my stew, and I like, the, the, I like when the, the, the potatoes just break down enough to sort of make a soupy kind of saucy, you know, uh, and, and thicken that sauce and that juice in the pot. So... You are so talking my language, and I, oh, I, I always know. T- and, and, and then you put some you know, <laughs> bay leaves. You got to use the, the herbs that are prevalent over there to get that flavor, which is of course fresh bay leaf, which is like the oils come out of the bay leaf, and then thyme, fresh thyme, and, and once that's in there, and it's just allowed to cook down, those flavors break down, and it's just to die for, as they say. Now, do you serve this at the Irish House Pub on St. Charles Avenue, where you hold yeah, forth? Yeah, we do. We, 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 we actually, we're, we've got pretty famous. We're, we're, we've been in the top ten Irish pubs in the U.S. Wow. For the, for the last uh, five years. And it's, it's because I, I, don't, I don't want to be the place that says, you know, oh, chicken wings or anything like that. I'd rather give authentic Irish food or... and. You know, you, we can say Irish food, we can say pub food because that's what the, it's an Irish pub and it's Irish pub food. It's comfort food. You know, we do a shepherd's pie and people come in here and they say, "Man, I don't even see shepherd's pie on people's menus anymore." I love that. I remember my mom making it, and and if we can even get close to that, we, we touch on those memories that that you have. You know, that you well, I, I have to improve do. on and, my. And, and if we can just get there, then and 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 people are just they're in awe and they say, "Oh, thank God, somebody's kind of making these dishes and keeping them up." And there's people that travel here from they travel here from um, over in um, over in um, like uh, Europe, and when they they show up, they're they're wanting to fish and ship after their time out out on the, you know, on the town, and we can replicate those fish and chips and stuff like that. So now let's go to the fish and chips for a minute because. Um, uh, it's hard for me to get off the stews because I miss them so much. Uh, I really, I just miss my mother's cooking and I miss the stews. And I, I'm just going to have to come to the pub. Um, and I guess tonight would be ridiculous because it's it's uh, it's the it's the last day of Irish week at the pub. So I don't even want to think what it's going to be like. It's going to be crazy, right? Well, but, yeah, no, it's 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 actually we we you know I would tell you the first year when I opened it was crazy because we didn't have systems in place and we were trying to do everything. And what we've now is that we've we streamline things, and we have we do like the five or six dishes that everybody wants, and we just have a very good system. So come on by, okay. you're, you're going to have a great time. We actually have Terry McDermott tonight, who's uh, who's playing in a he's uh, he's from The Voice. He was featured on The Voice, and he's doing a concert at five o'clock. We have a uh, jazz brunch going right now, Guinness Jazz Brunch. I don't know. Uh, it's funny when I say you know jazz and oysters are synonymous with Ireland. It's huge. They have loads of oyster festivals, which New Orleans has. And jazz, Cork Jazz Festival is huge. And here's New Orleans with jazz, too, you know? Oh, my goodness. I, I can't. This is fabulous. Now, I, I'm looking at um, some of the uh, information that um, Christoph dug up for me. <clears throat> and he says that you actually um, also, I mean, you, you're... Uh, your skills go well beyond the Irish food, and 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 you talk about the Cajun Creole soul, 
cuisine of New Orleans. And, and so I'm curious about, um, do you include some of that kind of food? Because, you know, one of my favorite restaurants in New Orleans has always been Mosca's, where they combine uh, both Italian and New mm-hmm. Orleans Creole cooking style. So do you do any of that, too? Yeah, you know, um, the funniest thing was when we were here, we were have we have an Irish music session, which is traditional Irish music that goes on on a Monday. And one night, we had the window open and the music was going out in the street. And this lady came in and she came into the pub and she was crying. And I said, what's wrong? Oh my God, something's happened, you know? And I went over and she said, I can't believe I'm hearing Irish music again in New Orleans. And she lived down the street. She'd been out for a walk, and I got to talk to her. And there's so many of those Irish music. Who would have thought that this would have reminded? She would remind her of when she was growing up as a kid in the Irish Channel, that she was able to just go back those years. The same with the food. You know, we've taken some. We've taken some things. We've we've we do an Irish Bayou gumbo. We do our own version. Irish Bayou gumbo. Yeah, yeah, we drive past (laughs) the big signpost on I-10 every day. It says Irish Bayou, right? Uh-huh. So we said, hey, we're going to do an Irish bio gumbo. We're going to take some of the ingredients in Louisiana, and we're going to take some of the ingredients from Ireland, and we're making our own gumbo. And, oh, my God. Uh, it has, that dish has just got legs of its own. We have people requesting it all the time. I and mean, we just, you know, we feature the regular stuff, but we use, instead of using, we put some on doing in there, but we also use some Irish sausage, you know? We have a, we we also use a roux, but we also use a little bit uh, of potatoes in there to help thicken it. So you have the best of both worlds, and that's a dish that that we created here, and, and, and people go 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 crazy for. Oh, I can't okay. wait to try that because, of course, who doesn't love a gumbo, <laughs> and uh, and and the, and having the potatoes in there. Uh-huh. You know, I I'll tell you a funny thing. I mean, uh, again, I, I, having grown up with my my mother's um, sort of. Basically, as I say, um, it was an English family that she grew up with. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. I'm trying to remember their name, but it's not coming to me right this minute. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, so they might have been Irish. I don't know. But anyway, she she absolutely she we we were a real meat and potatoes family, right? We would have vegetables yeah. and and meat. And mashed potatoes was a common thing in our household. And then mashed potatoes went out of style, right? And then and and then you go and I, every once in a while, I'll tell my husband, I said, I've just got to have some mashed potatoes. And so one of the places that they serve it actually is at Chris's Roost Roost Steak Roost Chris Steakhouse. Yeah. And so. Um, I'll, I'll just go get my mashed potato fix. But I, I miss that simple. Every once in a while, I just want that real. I, I think of it as simple. Maybe that's not fair because New yeah. Orleans food is so much more complicated in, in its, um, you know, origins and, and ingredients. But um, is it unfair to, to call that food simple? No, well, I, I think I, I would think it's called comfort food. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and 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 that's something that over the years, you know, you said I have a lot of skills. Yeah, I do. I've gone, I've cooked with the best chefs in, in the U.S. and around the world. And you know what I what I what I come to, to to say is, you can't compete with people's memories when it comes to food. Huh, and and when you go back, yeah. and, and you know, we all didn't we all did not grow up with world class chefs, right, in the kitchen at home. We grew right. up with our moms or our dads, or and then they were always doing the best. And most times, it's simple ingredients. Because, you know, they were probably struggling as we're growing up at that age, you know, to get through. And those are the dishes that touched our hearts. They're the dishes that touched our palate. So this is what I, this is what we do here. It's comfort food. It's, it's the food that we, you know, that, that, that you grew up with. And, you know, it, it, it's things like that. 
you know, I had a gentleman here one time. He said, you know, Murph, they used to, they used to do, we used to get baked potatoes down there on Canal Street in the wintertime. The guy would have a drum and he'd have the potatoes and, and bake them on top of it. And I was thinking, you know, isn't that funny? Because you see, you think of three potatoes in the oven, but you don't think of baked potatoes being something that, that was cooked on the streets down here. But there you go. And, 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 and this is a quite an old gentleman, you know. He was, he was saying, he, he, these things have, have to be re- relived and, and, and people have to find out about them and, and then sort of research them and, and bring them back to prevalence. And I, I love that. I love, I love that part of it. That a lot of times with the Irish House, we really want to bring the culture, the Irish culture that was in New Orleans, back. There's a, there's a, you know, there's a lot of Irish pubs out there, um, and they're all doing their own thing, whether it's sports or, or whatever. But we're about the culture, the music. You know, we have traditional things that, that go on here, with the, um, with the, uh, you know, that just through the year. Whether we have the Rhymers, which is an old group, and here's a funny thing: they do, they do old song and dance which is similar to what they did in Ireland. And there's probably only two or three groups left in the world. One is in Armagh, and a few in, one in Chicago. And where's the other one? Louisiana. And uh-huh. not so many people know about that. But they have the old sort of uh, theater traditions that they're keeping alive. So it's, for me, it's, 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 it's a great thing, and it's a great thing to show people, and they find out about it, and they're like, how, how do we not know? But they've lost a little touch, but they're... The great thing is when they find out of it, they can't get enough of it. Yeah, and, um, you know, the other thing, of course, that I grew up with, uh, again, at Shraff's where I worked, and I worked at what I called the bake counter, you know, the bakery. They had incredible baked goods and and a lot of um, things that I don't know whether they were Irish or English or from everywhere, but I can remember things like apple crumb pie. Oh, my God, the best thing in the whole world. Shadow cakes. And, um, uh, I, you know, just a, a whole range of, of delicious um, pastries. So let's talk dessert for just a minute. Yeah, well, those, those items, you know, you, you, you know, I think, you know, Ireland was under British rule. So over the years, uh, you know, of that, people got introduced to things like that, whether it's apple pie. And, you know, um, bar for the other stuff, this is probably something good because they brought, they brought like, uh, you know, those different varieties of whether it was apple brambleys, apple pies, and in Ireland wild apples, they made pies with that, and, and uh, along those sort of things. Whether they were able to, you know, the Dublin Bay shrimps that they brought into Dublin Bay, those those shrimps went all over the world, and they were, you know, people were going crazy. Hey, I was paying tons of money for Dublin uh, Bay prawns. They call them prawns, but they're kind of, I guess over here you'd say it's shrimp. But these items were all over the world and got famous, you know, just as much as the Irish learned some of the different varieties of cooking and, and whether it's pies or whether it's stews or whether it's, you know, steak and kidney pie, which is a big English thing, but we have our own version in Ireland where there's beef, you know, beef pies and things like that. All, all that, the English breakfast, the Irish breakfast, the Scottish breakfast, all very, very similar because they all came under the same, you know, I guess they, when the British Empire were taken over all the spots, that's they they pushed that food. But it's after growing at life of its own, and now Ireland has took those dishes and made them their own. Well, it's good stuff, and um, yeah. and, and as everybody anybody who uh, has spent uh, more than twenty four hours in New Orleans knows, the Irish traditions of New Orleans. I mean. 
you know, when you have an Irish channel in a city, you have to know how strong that tradition was, knows yeah. that the but, Irish yeah. uh, traditions in New Orleans are, are, are so strong and so much a part of the mix. You know, yeah, I, a they, lot of people always talk about the French influence in New Orleans, and I always say, no, New Orleans is, is African, it is European, it is uh-huh. um, Italian, Irish, German, uh, more recently is the Asian uh, yeah. uh, influence of the Vietnamese there. and the Vietnamese restaurants all over town that are so fabulous, too. So, um, you know, again, Matt, um, thank you so much for being here. We're yeah. sure glad you chose okay. New Orleans to uh, yeah. to, to well, put uh, your pub. I, I, may I just tell you, because I'm sure the listeners would love to know that, you know, this year, it, uh, 1916 Rising was when Ireland got its independence from England and basically, much like they did in America, kicked them out. And uh, they have a lot of celebrations here going on. Um, it's the 100th anniversary, and uh, it's coming up on the April the 23rd. There's a big celebration going on over in St. Alfonso's Church. So there's going to be a huge night, and if people you know, want to go, just keep an eye out. I'm sure it will be all over the news. Thank you for telling me that, and I will be sure to um, do something on that as we get close to that. And um, so this is Chef Matt Murphy. He's the owner of the Irish House Pub on St. Yes. Charles Avenue. What's your cross street there by the restaurant? Uh, it's uh, St. Charles and Malpamine. If you go to Lee Circle, you'll probably hear the bagpipers from Lee Circle. Uh, <laughs> great. <laughs> I, I'm going to try to get over there tonight. Going on. <laughs> I'm going to try to get over there tonight, and I'll look for you, and I'm going to be having some stew for sure. Yeah. And thanks very much for we being with us. We have a big block party okay. going on, so it's, 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 it's going to be a fun time. Have a blast. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Take have care. All right. On a, on a slightly more serious note, but um, still very celebratory, we're going to talk to a young man uh, named Sam Buller. Is that how you pronounce your name, Sam? That's right. All right. Sam has got a very, uh, a little shorter lifespan here going, but a very interesting story nonetheless. And, and he, this week, won the Downtown Development District's Creative Industries Um, pitch contest, which is part of the New Orleans Entrepreneur Week, which is this big, I I call it the Millennials Mardi Gras, because, um, you know, if you you stroll onto Fulton Street right now uh, during the Entrepreneur Week, there's just nothing but, uh, not not nothing but, but a ton of the uh, 20-year-olds who faced with a very changing job world, as we all are, have chosen the route of entrepreneurialism, which is a challenging way to live. You can you can sort of risk your life several times before you make it or wind up working with other people who are working at it. And, and Sam came up with an idea for how to encourage our creative entrepreneurs that, that won us over. I was one of the judges. And um, he, he, he's doing something that uh, actually our organization, CANA, wanted to do. So um, we really want to support this because we think it's really important. Sam, why don't you, first of all, let's just talk about what it is. How do you pronounce it? Culturalist? Culturalist, that's right. Culturalist. Explain to me and to our um, audience what culturalist is, and um, and then I'll, I want to delve a little bit more into why you're doing this and, and in your motivation, because it was very interesting when I read a little bit about uh, from your bio, your motivation. Go ahead. Yeah, well, thank you for having me, Gene. I, I really am honored to be on the show with you. Um, the culturalist is, is sort of two things. It's a directory of all the city's artists, 
you want to make it really easy to find any of the artists that you want to see. So you want to see all the graffiti artists, you want to see all the writers, you want to see all the ballerinas. We want to make that really easy to, to do, to find those people. So once we have this big directory of all the city's artists, we're going to make it um, easy to, to directly support them. So there's a patronage mechanism that we layer on top of this directory. And it allows you to say, okay, my, my cultural support budget is five bucks a month. And with that five bucks, I want to support you know, five different artists for a dollar each, or I want to support one artist for five dollars. But every month you pay this amount of money to an artist you love, and in return you get exclusive access and content and basically a relationship with that artist. Um, so we're trying to build a way that the city, a city like New Orleans that depends on, on culture for so much of its economy and so much of its, of its identity, trying to make it an easy way for folks to, to support the artists they love, support the culture that, that keeps our city going, um, while also making the city smaller because more relationships is a good thing. That's sort of and, and, you know, we just we can't emphasize how important it is to try to aim um, these potential uh, sources of funding to these artists because there's a, uh, the flip side of the richness of our culture in, in New Orleans is the poorness of our artists in that we just don't have um, and, and this is not only true in New Orleans, but in so many cities, we, we don't have a, a contemporary marketplace that recognizes the amount of creative work being done, whether it's performing or visual or media or design or culinary. Culinary, of course, we have the least trouble with here in New Orleans. But even the musicians, when you, you go to look at the average annual income of a musician in New Orleans, it is it is really barely out of a poverty range when, in fact, our tourism industry brags of this huge number of, of tourism dollars that come into the city. But a lot of that money is going into the restaurants and into the hotels, but it's not going into the pockets of the cultural producers in the city that um, that we think are so important. So I think this is a very interesting strategy of yours. Now, tell me how you are going to take those $5 that I put in on a monthly basis and get it to the artist. Because, of course, this is what people are going to be very concerned about. Is the money going into the pockets of the organizers or into the artist's pockets? So it's going directly into the artist's pockets. We're, we need to keep the lights on, so we're going to take a, a 5% cut, which is sort of standard across a lot of crowdfunding sites. That's actually a um, low percentage, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're going to take 5%, and then um, for security reasons, we're not going to hold on to any money. So we're using a, a payment partner called Stripe, um, which is super trusted by a bunch of big companies around the world. Um, and so the, the person like you would put in $5 a month, and that money would go directly to the, to the artist's bank account um, on the same day every month. And the artist will walk away with somewhere between... 83 and 89% off of the, the money that you put in because um, there's our 5% plus there's some credit card fees, I think 3%. Um, so we're, tr- we're trying to work with Stripe to get that the, 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 the take from the artist as, as high as possible. And, and, the and, lion's share goes to the artist. Okay. Now, now let me make certain that uh, one of one thing I'm, I'm concerned about and I'm sure people in my audience are concerned about is what about your cultural legacy your culture bearers, are they going to be able to benefit from this? And how are you going to identify who are artists and who are culture bearers? So that's where I think it's a great question. Um, 
we want this to be a tool that serves the entire cultural ecosystem. Um, so we've, we've sat down with Social Aid and Pleasure Clubs. We've sat down with, um, with Chief Howard from, from you know, representing the Mardi Gras Indians, or one, one tribe, and we've gotten really good feedback from them because um, there's ways that, that those culture bearers specifically can build rewards for, for patrons that are really amazing. People would love to, you know, people would love to come and learn about Mardi Gras Indian history and directly from the Mardi Gras Indians themselves, and are willing to pay a monthly amount of money to have that relationship with those culture bearers. Um, so we want to make sure that, that everyone can benefit, um, and so we're trying to build a tool that, that really just is, is democratizes the process. Um, so for the second part of your question, how do how do folks get on here, and who who determines what is what? I think. We have a lot of, of learning to do as an as a organization from people like you, from people like, um, you know, who, who have been cultural, cultural organizations that have, have been doing work in this space, incredible work in this space for, you know, decades. So we're going we're gonna to ask those organizations for help in identifying, identifying people and organizations and, and you know, culture bearers that, that need to be highlighted and need to be supported better. So Sam, um, as you as you develop your process and and your um, and your organizational effort and, and your directory, um, let let's let's do some updates and and talk about it going forward. I, I don't have as much time as I would like to have had for you on the show because we got a little too tied up with things like lamb stew and bread pudding. So forgive me for that. But, um, you know, as he said, as, as the chef uh, Murphy said, you know, there's nothing stronger than your childhood memories of food. And so there I was reliving them as we no, talked. I don't blame you. <laughs> but um, so we'll, we, uh, what I want you to do is let's engage folks in this conversation through the radio show as one vehicle. And um, in, in our newsletter, we'd like to help you out also in, in uh, forming that, uh, in, in promoting that conversation, because I, this is basically a way that you and me and everybody, just like Bernie Sanders supporters, can um, uh, decline, can can cut away at the the. Uh, overweening influence of the powerful and the rich and really make sure that our artists are, get the kind of patronage that the rich used to provide that they don't even do anymore. So I, I think what you're doing is really important and, and let's, let's, um, let's keep this conversation open and going and I'll, I'll give you more time the next time we talk and apologize for it. Lambs too. All right, Sam Bowler, a culturalist. Um, can, what's your website, Sam? It's culturalist.com at C-U-L-T-U-R-A-L-Y-S-T. Spell culturalist. C-U-L-T-U-R-A-L-Y-S-T. All right. Thank cultural catalyst. Great. Sam, looking forward to further conversations with you, and good luck, and let's talk off, off the line as well. This is Gene Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversation, and i got to get out of here, or else I'm going to get <laughs> booted out. Um, so, Gene Nathan, talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you.